Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of series 3 of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast where retired athletes share their own personal stories about their transition to life after sport. Today's conversation is with Olympic freestyle skier James Matheson, a relatively young man with a great perspective on preparing for life after sport. James is the first athlete I've spoken with that is still competing and our conversation was enlightening on a whole host of levels. James also has his own podcast series which focuses on a similar theme to the Wide Open Road called The Athlete Collective. Please enjoy my conversation with James Matheson. G'day James and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast. As we were talking about just uh, off air before, I'm excited by today's conversation as this is going to be a new experience for me where you're going to ask me some questions as well because the podcast that I'm doing on the Wide Open Road and the podcast that you're doing called The Athlete Collective are doing very similar things and so Whilst we're going to talk a little bit about your journey towards planning for life after sport, let's talk about the Athlete Collective for a minute. Tell me a little bit about it and tell me what you're trying to achieve out of the Athlete Collective podcast. Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm happy to be here and really excited. Both of us are trying to do the same things with our podcast. And so for us to be able to get together and have a chat here is, uh, is really exciting. So with the Athlete Collective, I basically wanted to first of all, from a personal perspective, understand how other athletes have found passions outside of sport. And that was sort of started from a need of myself looking for those sorts of things. As I was thinking of retirement, I had to think about how other people have retired from elite sport. And then that sort of led me down the journey of leveraging the network that I have within sport to actually meeting some really incredible people. And so I decided then that you know, I'm having all of these really great conversations with people, surely there's a better way of going through these. And so the idea to start a podcast sort of spurred from a personal need of mine, but has now expanded into sort of a wider network and community of athletes all sort of striving for that passion outside of sport without actually taking away from the sport. It's just sort of an additive on top of that. And if you think about some of the things that the people that you've spoken to have, have shared with you, what have you taken out of it from the point of view of finding that passion outside of your sport and also potentially turning that into a career that's going to last you well past the days when you stop being a mogul skirt. Mate, so much. I didn't tell you this actually, by the way, but um, I'm reached now the end of my sort of first season of the podcast. And so I will be putting out my last episode tomorrow before I go on a break. And so I've been trying to consolidate and think about all the different things that I've learned, you know, about finding these passions outside of sport. And there's a lot. Um, so I'm sure we'll work through them today. But one of them, for example, that springs to mind is one of the most recent podcasts I did was with a guy called Randall Cooper. And he runs a company called Premax, which is a sports skincare company. And he was saying that while he wasn't an athlete, he's had lots of career transitions. And through those career transitions, he's sort of learned that you need to start early. And it sounds like, you know, that's a simple thing to say, but a lot of people and a lot of athletes I've spoken to who struggled started very late looking for those passions outside of sport until it was almost too late. And so one of the things is starting early and it's an iterative process that you work through things. And I think we actually spoke about this, Ed, where you said that it's about finding things that you don't like which can be very important before actually finding things that you can like. Certainly from my perspective, you're right. I mean, the interesting thing about it though is that I think I've had pretty similar career trajectory to Randall in the sense that I've had a few transitions over the course of the last 30-odd years. The one thing I've found is though is that you can look at things in two different ways. You can look at things as that, oh, crikey, you know, I'm 35 or I'm 45 or I'm 50 and there's no way I could possibly start doing something else. I think it's to do with your mindset and bringing the collective experiences that you've had over a 20 or 30 year period 
to use that to leverage what you might want to do next. And if I, I go right back to when I was 23, you know, the ripe old age of 23. Now, when I was that age, I was at university in Tasmania, at the University of Tasmania, and I was completing an arts degree and I did a law subject. And I thought to myself, I should go and do law. At 23, I'm going, I'm too old to do law. And then I fast forward 25 years and a good friend of mine who I went through school with, she now lives in Sydney with her family uh, and her husband and she did a law degree. I think that she was 43 or 44 when she started and now she's working in the law. And so I think from the perspective of, you know, I don't think you're ever too old. I might be too old to be an astronaut perhaps, but I think the whole point of the matter is, is that career transitions from what I've learned from athletes is that there needs to be thought put into it long before you retire, just so you don't spend three or four years floundering around trying to work out what you might want to do after you've finished as opposed to getting prepared for when you do finish. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And also, I don't sell yourself short, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos is, uh, and uh, <laughs> and um, the Virgin CEO, they've just gone to space, so I'm pretty sure that's still on the cards for you. Uh, <laughs> just the, you know, the fact of being a billionaire is probably the next step, but, you know, don't sell yourself short there. But I agree, it's, it's starting early. And one thing I actually wanted to ask you, which I thought is a very interesting perspective, is that you're coming at it not as necessarily an athlete per se, but you have a you know very strong interest within sport. But one of the things that I've loved about this podcast is how transferable all the lessons are to any type of transition that you're going to be going through. So how have you found all of these conversations that you've had with all of the athletes, how have you found that has you know helped your own thinking about transition and maybe put into practice as I know that you're going through a type of uh, career transition at the moment? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, I think from my point of view, it really comes back to a couple of things. The first thing is, is that every athlete that I've spoken to understands that they have skills that they've developed over a period of time that can be transferred to other parts of life. And you'd be aware of this and you'd appreciate this because you're an elite athlete yourself. But that elite mindset, that performance focus can be transferred to any, I think, into any area of work outside of sport. I think the other thing which I found really interesting is that each individual has to find their own way. And I talk about this on many of the podcast conversations that I have, that the whole idea of doing the podcast was to purely provide current athletes with an opportunity to hear from retired athletes about their journeys and what they did. And it's a bit like a football coach or any coach, if you've played football or played any sport for a period of time, you'll end up being coached by a few different people over a period of time. And you might pick up one or two things from each of them. And then it's about actually doing what you believe is right for you, as opposed to maybe trying to copy what someone else has done, because it's not always going to work. And if I think about when I went from a consulting role into private wealth management and finance when I was 40, having not had a background in that area, a couple of things really helped me. The first thing was I had an amazing group of people around me that could support me, mentor me, and help me get through what was a pretty not so much intimidating environment from the perspective of the people around because they were awesome, but just having to learn a lot and going from running my own business to being a relatively junior individual in that particular organisation. And I think that takes a bit of courage from the point of view of putting yourself out there, being prepared to ask what I would call the silly questions, even though most questions that are ever asked are ones that a lot of people are thinking about anyway. And then just having the courage to get moving and to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And this is a lot of things that happen on the the talk we talk about on the podcast is that 
All athletes I've spoken to have mentors outside of sport, which provide them with a different perspective on the things that they might want to do when they finish. And I think that's the most important thing. I mean, one thing I've just underlined here is networks. And so one of the biggest things that I remember as I was going through all these podcasts that kept popping up, kept popping up, was the value of networks. So whether that's the people around you or really going out there actively and trying to find that mentor or someone you can learn from is huge. So having you know, these podcasts out there like yours and hopefully like mine has been for some people as well is a huge thing where you can learn from the other people and go through that. But one of the things I also thought was quite interesting, so when you went into this new role and you went into Edmonton Partners, was it almost like being a beginner again in a way? So one thing that I find really exciting about when I finish sport and go into a new thing is being able to start from the beginning again and have that steep learning curve and sort of, you know, have that feeling of, like I'm just learning left, right and centre or you're drinking from a fire hose per se, as opposed to when you're quite comfortable and in somewhere that you've been for a long time. You know, it's not easy, but you're comfortable there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, look, absolutely. It was was like being a beginner again, but not in all aspects because I brought a different skill set to the table than many of my colleagues from Evans and Partners with regards to a marketing and consulting background. So I could think about things a little bit differently. And I worked with two guys at the start who were just brilliant to me and we all complemented each other really, really well. And I think it's about having a skill set which you can match really well with somebody else, especially in that sort of environment where you're generally working in smaller groups to service a client base. And we brought different things to the table. They brought the finance, the investment skill set. I brought more of a business development and a mindset around how do we go about growing the client base and how do we go about winning new business. And I think all of that comes together really nicely. A lot of it's got to do with the people. And I think from my perspective, which is a question for you, is that if you think about the mentors that you've spoken with over the course of your time in skiing, what are some of the things that they've sort of told you or got you to think about when it comes to what you might do next? Because if you have a look at the things that you've done over the course of your career whilst you've been competing, you know, you've done quite a lot of different things, which has clearly said to me that you're out there to try and find what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do. Absolutely. It's as much as finding what you don't want to do, which helps you then figure out what you might actually want to do. So I've done a number of internships while I've still been competing and training and it's sort of, again, it's leveraging those networks and getting out there and figuring out, you know, what skills have I developed over the time as being an athlete or, or whatever it is that you've been doing that are going to work, you know, when I finish skiing. And what are the things that I actually have developed and these skills that I can build upon instead of, you know, fully starting as a beginner again. So as you said, you were able to bring some of your past skills into your new role. So it's about trying to find those things. So that's one thing that a lot of the mentors have spoken to me about is trying to you know, get out there and get experience and see what you're actually good at. But most of all, figuring out what you actually like doing because then you can actually enjoy it and then you'll work at it. You'll spend more hours doing it and then you'll be good at it. And so that was one thing I learned, for example, when I worked in a finance role. Um, although my degree was in finance, uh, when I went and actually put that to practice, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I thought I would. And so then I reckon I would be pretty poor at it, <laughs> to be honest. So that's one thing. And so I think it's just accepting that and knowing, and it's sort of maybe a, I don't know, maybe a self-awareness thing that I've been told as well by the mentors is like, just having the courage to just do it and then being honest with yourself, you know, if you don't like it, then that's fine. You can move on and take advantage of another opportunity. And so that's another big thing is they've always said is while you are an athlete and you're in this position of 
having these amazing networks around you is really try and make the most of those opportunities because when you finish quite often they're going to be gone or it's going to be difficult to keep those around you and so making sure that you take as many opportunities as you can as you're an athlete is a huge thing because when you're an athlete it's so easy to take it for granted because you've been growing up in this sport you've been growing up in this bubble and things have been coming at you but as soon as you step out of that from a lot of the people I've spoken to it seems that a lot of those things stop coming at you and so you need to really take advantage of those things so that's probably another big one that uh, that I learned. Oh, look, there's no question. That's a very, very consistent across every athlete I've spoken to is the fact that you do need to leverage those networks while you are competing because they end up forgetting about you, so to speak. Tell me a little about what you believe are some of the skills that you bring as an elite athlete to a life outside of sport. Mm-hmm. Well, say me personally, it's actually something that you mentioned before as well was you have some really good people around you. So when you moved to Evans Partners, um, you were able to, you had some really good people around you that helped you sort of grow and build into that role. And so one of the things that I've learned as an athlete is the team around you is extremely important. And so one thing that I know that I'm good at or that I enjoy doing, therefore I'm good at, is I enjoy working in teams and working with people. And so figuring out how to get a group of people working towards a common goal and everyone doing their right jobs is something that I enjoy doing and that sort of interaction. And so the importance of a good team around you is something that I will remember for the rest of my life. And that's definitely something that sport has taught me is you need to have the best team around you to get the best outcome. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And so that's definitely a huge one that's come through. I'm sure that's something that you've experienced as well. Yeah, look, certainly it is. I mean, I, I mean, everything that we do in life is really revolves around people, ourselves and other people. And I think whether it's coaching children's sport or working in a corporate environment, you get a group of people that are coming together. And the interesting thing at the moment is because COVID is not allowing everybody to get together as much as they would like, both from a social and a work point of view, and I would argue that work is a very social environment now anyway, a lot of social connection comes from people's work. So that provides some challenges when it comes to doing some of the things that athletes might want to do with respect to getting together with with other people, learning from mentors that sit outside of the sport that they're competing in. But it still comes back to people and the fact that if you can get on with people, if you are interested in what's going on in the world, as opposed to some people just wanting to be interesting, you know, asking questions, finding things out, because the great story that an athlete told me, I think it was Craig Mottram. So when Craig was running and was one of the, the best middle distance runners in the world, he spoke about the fact that he was working with Nike and he was asking questions about things that they did and what different parts of the organisation could he be involved in. And that led him to opportunities which he's now taking advantage of, you know, 10, 12 years down the track. And I think if I can sort of work through the one thing which I've learned over my 30-odd years working is that you've got to be open to new opportunities. And what on the surface might look like something that, you might not want to do, you should have a crack at it because you never quite know. And the thing is, is that you don't want to be in a situation where you regret not taking advantage of an opportunity that's presented to you because you just never quite know where that might lead. And I think that's the one thing which I encourage all professional athletes to think really strongly about is that if an opportunity pops up, say yes, you can always change your mind. But if you say no, Often those sorts of opportunities can become more scarce purely because people might go, oh, well, you know, he or she's not really appreciating what I'm trying to do for them and then so I'll stop asking. 
No, I agree. And, it, and, it, and a big thing there that sort of jumped to mind is letting go of the fear of failure. And so as an athlete, even though people might think if, you know, let's say if you're one of the best athletes in the world, they might think that, you know, they win all the time and that's what they're used to. But no, all athletes fail. And that's what they're characterized by is just multiple and multiple and multiple failures on top of each other. But then, you know, picking yourself up and then just putting in the hard work to then accept that, yeah, I'm going to fail, but then it's just keep going. You know, if you ask any athlete, they're going to say most of their career is defined by small failures and probably a small amount of big wins. And I mean, that also just applies to what you were talking about then with work and career transition for anyone. You know, it's just accepting that I might try and do this thing and I might fail, but it's just letting go of that fear of failure. I mean, that's given circumstances, you know, you don't want to put it all on the line, but I'd say, yeah, it's taking those calculated risks and being happy to fail. See, it's interesting you say that because many, many athletes, even athletes that play in successful teams or are successful themselves are going to have results that don't go the way that they want, even though that they, you know, maybe they believe they could have done better. And I think the thing is, is that it can be two ways to look at things. You can look at a failure as a failure and just go, well, that was just a bad experience. I want to wipe it from my memory bank. Or you can use it as a learning experience. So every work role that I've had over the course of time, there's always great things that come out of them, regardless of whether you enjoyed it at the time or not. And if I go all the way back to when I was working in the human resources and people and culture area some 20 odd years ago, it became clear to me that it was just time for me to do something else. But when I reflect back on it, there were so many good things which I learned over the course of those couple of years that I was doing that job. And so from my perspective, if you have a chance to reflect, you can always take a positive out of what you might consider to be a negative at that particular point in time, which gets me to a question about your competition and your competing. Now, you're one of the best mogul skiers in the world and you've been competing and been doing this for a very, very long time. I think you started doing freestyle skiing when you were when you were under 10 years old. And by the time you were 15 years old, you'd qualified for a World Cup. So from that perspective, talk to me about how you've developed your craft, but at the same time, how you've used perceived failures to drive you to improve. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it sucks to fail. <laughs> you know, like it sucks. It hurts, and you don't want that to happen again. So you can use that as a motivation to just do more and do better and learn from it, so that doesn't happen again. So you don't have that crappy feeling again. I just, I think, what I meant before was lots of little failures. So I don't just mean, you know, at the big events. I mean, at a day of training. I might mess up a small skill or I might mess up a certain type of drill that we were working on. That's what I mean by small failures. And then it's just getting better and better. And in those smaller moments, then they will just build up. So then you can be better in those bigger moments. And so I'd say that's one of the biggest things from when I was younger to what I am at now is just accepting that it's going to take a while and it's building upon those things. And it's those little building steps over time that really add up and pay dividends. And I didn't really notice that until probably I made the Olympic team. I think I was recently speaking to someone and they were, you know, asking at what point did I feel like I was an athlete? And I said, I probably didn't feel like that until I had been to the Olympics. I wasn't comfortable or I didn't feel like I deserved, you know, that name or that sort of type of thing. And so I think it was just developing those types of skills and just being happy to just build them over time, I think was a big one and not being in a rush, I think is another thing that was pretty important and just trusting that process. Tell me about belonging. And what I mean by that is, is that you just mentioned the fact that it took you a long time to accept the fact that you were a good athlete. And it was really not until you became 
well, you have, you have O-L-Y after your name now, which is awesome. I mean, I've interviewed a number of Olympic athletes over the course of this three series uh, podcast and I love the fact that you've got those, if you like, initials after your name. I think it's wonderful. But talk to me about belonging because over the course of time, there's no question that if you can walk into an environment, whether it's a sporting environment or whether it's a working, a more traditional career environment, the one thing that's the single most important thing that I can think of is that you need to feel like you belong. And that's being accepted for who you are. It's being accepted for what you bring to the table, which brings up the ability to perform really well if you can be who you are and you actually are seen that you can add value. So talk to me about the belonging to the Australian Winter Olympics team and how that has maybe manifested itself over the course of time purely because you've become better at what you do. It's a really interesting word choice you use there. So I've never actually heard the word belonging used in that context, but it's a perfect word for it. You know, you feel like you're belonging to a part of a culture or a part of a movement that you can be working towards. And I'd say, so personally for me, feeling like I belong to this group of basically elite athletes, which is what it is. The Australian freestyle community is extremely elite, but feeling like you belong to something like that on a broader level is important because then you can be comfortable and you can be comfortable in your own skin, which is what you touched on before. And when you're comfortable in your own skin, you sort of accept yourself for who you are and where you belong. Then you can get on with being the best version of yourself, which is a huge part of it. Um, And so once you are comfortable with that, then you can sort of let go of any type of insecurities or fear of failures and you can just get on and just do the thing that you want to do. And I'd say more specifically, I've been very fortunate in the fact that I've been brought up into a, you know, started the sport at the time that I did because of how good the Australian system and pathway is in terms of winter sport at the moment. Specifically, the freestyle team has just been an incredible journey and we, you know, came off the back of a gold and silver medalist, Dale Beck-Smith, and then now since then we've gotten just an amazing group that I've grown up with since I was 10 years old up until now. We have all been together and that's a pretty rare thing. I think a lot of people will, you know, they'll start their sport at a younger age and then they'll sort of move through teams and that sort of thing. Whereas with us, because it's such a niche sport, we have all been skiing together and traveling the world together since we were 12 years old. And so to be a part of a, yeah, that word belonging definitely rings very true uh, for us, I'd say. So talk to me about the fact that you've developed clearly very close relationships with all of the people that you're traveling around the world with for the best part of 15 years. Talk to me about the conversations that you may have had around what you're all going to do when you grow up, so to speak, and when you finish competing and when you've got you know, a runway of 50 odd years to fill in once you stop skiing, because I know for a fact, we might get to this a little later, but, you know, clearly it's a very technical sport, but talk to me about the conversations you may have had with your peers around what you all might do. Well, I'd say, first of all, when you first are thinking about it, you're almost a bit nervous, you know, you don't want to bring it up because then it, it could be seen from the outside as almost a weakness or like, you know, is your focus elsewhere? You know, are you not trying to be the best in the world anymore? Are you trying to, you know, is this just a side thing now? So that's a thing. You can be almost worried and I could see that. Not necessarily for me. I would say it was quite comfortable, but you could see that as being a thing that would hold you back. Can I just, can I just, um, jump, can I just jump in yeah. there? Because you're the second athlete I've spoken to in three weeks that have said that. Another athlete mentioned the same thing, that that they were very keen to come on this podcast, but because they were still competing in their chosen field, they didn't want to for fear of reprisals by speaking about what they might want to do when they finish. To my mind, 
that is a failure in the culture of Australian sport. One of the reasons why I've developed this podcast series is because there needs to be, in my opinion, a cultural shift in Australian sport. So athletes need to be thinking about when they're going to finish before they finish. And I know lots of different sports have got programs that have been developed over the course of time to help athletes in their transition and prepare for it. But at the end of the day, each individual athlete needs to be the one that drives that themselves. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but we all know the analogy, you've got to actually go and do it yourself. So I'm actually really interested in a sport like skiing or any sport for that matter, that athletes would be worried about talking about what's going to happen next whilst they're competing. Let's just talk a bit more about that. So what are some of the things that you may have heard from your peers, which may suggest that A, they're not wanting to talk about it, or more importantly, from my perspective, they're not wanting to prepare? I would say personally in my in my team, I'm in a pretty lucky position, I guess. The people around me are all very aware that this sport doesn't go for very long. And so just as an example, I'm 26 years old and I'm one of the older people on the tour. And I'm, you know, that's there. There's not many mogul skiers over the age of 30. I um, wish I was so. 26, James, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. That's this, this sport. So a bit of context is, is we, don't, we don't get to play till we're, you know, in your 40s like Tom Brady. But I would say it's, again, personally for me, I think it was actually an internal insecurity that probably had nothing to do with the community around me. So, for example, everyone in my team, they're all doing some form of, you know, post-school education. Most of them are all at university and most of them have actually just finished or just started or depending on where they're at. So all of them are thinking about life after sport and preparing for it. And that's always been a big thing. So, for example, I've been with the New South Wales Institute of Sport since I was 14 and they've always been big on educating and encouraging people to look for life after sport or just look at basically passions outside of sport, not necessarily just for after. And... It's always there, but one thing I'll say with the culture is that, look, Ed, I'm going to be honest with you here, it's pretty hard for me to think about this because the best of the best in the world, they don't necessarily look at other things outside of their sport, right? Like the best of the best. And so I've always wondered, even while I'm doing this, and I know it's a good thing to think about what you're doing after sport, is to be the very, very best do you have the bandwidth to do other things at the same time? I'm not sure. I don't know if I probably did. If like, let's say if I wanted to be the best of the best, maybe not. That's just the thing that, I don't know. Like, so I wanted to actually ask you this. So through your podcast and all the athletes that you've spoken to, do you think that it is a reality and something that people could do is being, you know, the Michael Jordans of the world and have something else at the same time? Well, I think that's, it comes down to the individual. It's a bit like working out the things that you like and the things that you don't like and, and learning from mentors who are helping you along the way. They can impart their knowledge, but at the end of the day, you're the one that's got to put it into practice if you like, and you're the one that needs to go out and do the things. So from that perspective, I think balance is something which a number of people who I've spoken to, and David Parkin is probably the the one that comes to mind who was, a, I think, a pioneer with respect to coaching in the AFL system going way back to the 1970s. And he was always very interested in what his athletes and what his players did outside of sport because obviously back then they weren't professional, but as time moved on and, and AFL athletes became professional, that 
he was really keen to make sure that they had interests outside of sport. And if you think about it from the perspective of balance, and I, I don't know whether balance is the right word purely because I would argue that if you are really loving a career, whether it's playing sport or not, you'll be energised by it, you'll be excited by it, and you'll just want to do it, and you might immerse yourself in it. But at the same time, on the flip side, if you are all in and everything is to do with sport 100% of the time, what happens when you finish? What happens when you fail, in inverted commas? How do you pick the pieces up? How do you cope with all of that if everything is just invested in that one spot? I would argue that the majority of really super elite sports people would have something else going on in the background that maybe not too many people of us know about, which just allows them to decompress from that pressure cooker of sport. But once again, I think it's very much an individual point of view. And I think it's also a bit sport oriented. You know, are you in a team sport? Are you in an individual sport? And that will come into it too. But from my perspective, there needs to be balance. And I'm reading a book at the moment called Range. And Range is all about specialists versus generalists. And they used a really interesting example at the start of the book about Tiger Woods and about Roger Federer. Tiger Woods, as we all know, very celebrated story, was essentially born with a golf club in his hand. Whereas Roger Federer played all sorts of sports when he was a kid and then over the course of time, you know, tennis drew him in. Both of those people are arguably the two greatest athletes in those sports of all time, but they had very different pathways. And so from my perspective, I don't think one size fits all, but I would argue that the athletes that I've spoken with are really pretty consistent saying that it helps them to have something else to focus on outside of sport whilst they're competing. Absolutely. I think yeah, the key there was the individual part, um, is that there's no one-size-fits-all and that individuals are going to need to have different things. And unfortunately, that means that probably some individuals need to pour themselves into a sport and to feel comfortable and to feel good at it, then they'll probably need to just be 100% of their focus is on it. But unfortunately, that often means that when they do finish or fail or however they want to call it, it is going to be really hard. And interestingly, a lot of the people who I've spoken to, there's almost a correlation between how good the athlete was in terms of their results and how difficult it was to retire afterwards. Even from my perspective, I'll say that my um, pursuits outside of sport have have taken away from probably how good I could have been. You know, so for example, when I was in high school, I was always, my parents made sure that I would, you know, finish my HSC, for example, and made sure I, you know, studied enough to do well and always encouraged that sort of thing. And that took away from training. And then also when I went to university throughout my career, again, that also took away from training and the time that I could have been spending on it. So, you know, if I hadn't have done that, maybe I could be better at the sport, but it's such a hard thing to say because, you're right, it's individual and each person has a different way of looking at it. And I mean, when I think of some people, so for example, that um, I think we spoke about this before actually, Ed, was the Weight of Gold documentary. Yes. And that's a documentary. Yeah, so that's a documentary with people like Michael Phelps, Sean White, Lolo Jones, and they talk about Apollo Ono and they talk about the difficulties it is for them who are, they were the best of the best or still are the best of the best of their sport in their sort of times after sport in retirement and that I found quite interesting because those it seemed like a lot of those people were the sort of the Tiger Woods they were just living and breathing their sport but the thing with golf <laughs> again an individual thing is the golf you can you can do that for a long time whereas other sports you can't do those things for a long time and then they get forced into that transition that maybe they're not ready for. Talk to me about 
what you mentioned just before about the fact that when you were growing up and you know your parents were encouraging you to finish school, get a good mark at HSC and all the rest of it, talk to me about the fine lines of being an elite athlete and the difference between, you know, everyone talks about the one percenters, you know, well, this person's staying on the track an hour longer than everybody else because he or she is practicing this particular part of their craft. Talk to me about that because when you are getting in the top call it 20 athletes in your chosen sport on the planet, and let's face it, there's over 7 billion of us, so that's a, pretty, that's a pretty small percentage. But what's the difference in your mind between being the best and being a little bit below the best? I honestly, I'd like to ask you this as well, but I'd say for me, I'm a big believer in just the time spent. So that 10,000 hours rule, I think that is so important. And so, first of all, you just need to have spent the amount of time doing something. But to be able to do the amount of time to do that, you need to really love it. And so that's the differentiating factor there is that the people who are willing to put in those hours are the people who enjoy it. And so the the people who I've come across who are the best at the sport that I do, they love the sport and they want to spend as much time as they can doing the sport. So I'd say the amount of time doing it and the amount of they love the sport they correlate to them being, you know, better than the rest of the people, I think. But what, what would you say, in your opinion, after all those people you've spoken to, what separates the, you know, the also-rans from the best of the best? I think there's a couple of things. The first one is the love of the sport is really important, clearly, because if you don't love what you're doing, I don't care what you, what pursuit you, you're going after, you're not going to give it your full 100% commitment. I think genetics plays a pretty good part in it too, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, that's, the, that's true. Luck. I mean, you've got to put that on luck, right? Yeah, luck. And I think the thing is, is that it's the environment around you that is going to help you excel. I mean, if you walk into a, a really supportive environment where you feel like you belong, that your contribution is valued and you're able to perform with a level of freedom which allows you not to be worried about whether you're going to get picked the next week or whether, you know, the mistake that you made last Saturday or during the week impacts you really, really negatively. I think that, to my mind, is what I've learned. It's all about environment. I mean, I think the other thing which I'm interested in is when you are competing at the level that you're competing at, James, and you are certainly when COVID wasn't an issue that it is now and you're travelling freely around the world to different competitions and I imagine you're learning a lot from your competitors and from the people that you're up against. But we talked about failure before, and I think we both agree that the way that I look at it is failure is a learning opportunity, not something you need to wipe necessarily from your mind every time. But when you do have a suboptimal result, what did you fall back on outside of sport? You had a chance to analyse it, but then you can kind of put it to one side and think about something else. I mean, because as I we, we spoke about before, just being all in every single waking hour and even when you're asleep, you're thinking about it all the time. I don't believe that's healthy to optimising performance. I agree. For me personally, so I didn't have the best competition season last season. So that was over, it would have been November till March. And towards the end of that season, I also had a back injury. And so a combination of an injury and not good results kind of puts you out and can put you into a negative mindset. And 
that is where I definitely needed an escape or a release. Unfortunately, I was in the very north of Finland in a uh, COVID bubble with not very much sunlight every day. And so you can't really escape. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to, get, to escape uh, physically there, especially when you've got a back injury, you can't really move. So I'd say it's very important having that escape and having those other areas. And again, going back to the point that it's quite often when someone needs something, they're going to reach out. So for me, I needed a release. And that's actually when I really started thinking about what am I going to do when I finish sport? And so that injury and that sort of those bad results made me think, okay, you know, this isn't going to last forever. I've been thinking about it, but now I really need to do something. So that's when I actually applied for the role that I've currently signed. Um, and so, yeah, that's when thoughts turned to action. I think at that point, that was definitely a big catalyst. Just tell me about injury. And we spoke about belonging before and the environment that is uh, conducive to great performance. What is the mindset of an elite athlete when you can't compete, when you're watching your peers go out every day and do the thing that you love and you're, you know, for an analogy, you're sitting in the sheds while everyone else is out there doing it. How does that make you feel and what do you try and do to use it as an opportunity to get better, even though you're still recovering from an injury? It sucks. Straight up, there's no sugarcoating it. It sucks. When you're injured, it is probably the worst part of being, being an athlete, I reckon. It's, so your, your life as an athlete is defined as feeling fit and strong and at the very peak of your performance. So you're feeling really, really good. You're feeling 100%. And then as soon as you get injured, you're hyper aware of you feeling not at that level that you've been so accustomed to. And so then that can leak into other things. And so it can be quite a negative step process and what you have to do is you have to focus on the process you have to focus on okay i'm not where i want to be right now where do i want to be i want to be back competing i want to be back doing what i love well, what do i need to do to do that i need to make sure i'm seeing physio enough i need to make sure i'm doing the exercises enough and basically what are the things that you can do to change it and it's the feeling of progress is what i like to hang on to so when you're injured it's that feeling of getting that little bit better and a little bit closer to your goal is what I think is a good way of doing it. It's just you need to lower the bar from where you were previously when you're feeling really healthy. Um, I actually had one question for you before we moved on there was we were talking about failure just before and I wanted to know how you found failure or whatever you want to call it, but let's say failure. How is that perceived in the workforce or in the roles that you've gone into? Is failure seen as something that you can learn from, you know, from the people around you, or is it seen as a negative, but you, you know, obviously thought about it as a positive? I think it's contextual in the sense that there are failures and there are failures from the perspective of, you know, if you're like a professional non-sporting work environment. Once again, I keep coming back to the individuals. Me personally, I'm my harshest critic and as a result, I will certainly when I was a bit younger, I would beat myself up a lot internally if I'd made a mistake. It could even be a very small mistake. As I've gotten older, I've learned to get more perspective around the fact that it's happened. You can't change it. All you can do is change what happens moving forward and how you might approach that particular issue or that particular work task differently. There would be a problem if the issue continued to come up, if you hadn't giving yourself a chance to learn from it. I think it also comes down to your environment within which you work and the people around you to support you and help you through it if it's a kind of a big mistake. I don't like people being defined by their failures or by their mistakes. I think that's unfair. And from that perspective, it comes down to 
understanding the reasons why this particular thing happened, mm-hmm. understanding what you could have done better, and then applying that going forward. But certainly there's been plenty of times over the course of my career where people have made mistakes, for want of a better expression, and they've been punished for them. Now, I don't know whether that's necessarily the right way to go. And we're not talking about breaking the law or anything like that. It's just a, you know, people stuff things up. We do it every day. I mean, every person in every walk of life, if they were perfect, my gosh, what a boring world we'd live in. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't have much to talk about. And I think the, yeah. th- I think the thing is, is that if you turn it back into a, into a sporting context, you know, you would argue that people are making mistakes every day and that's what makes them better because they're trying to eliminate that as they go along. So from a work perspective, or sorry, from a traditional career perspective, I don't think it's any different. I think the fact of the matter is, is that if you've got supportive people around you and you are learning as you go, they can be really positive experiences reflecting back. At the time, they can be pretty uncomfortable. And I can remember if I go all the way back to when I first was in a leadership role, I was 25 and working in a manufacturing business, I won't go into the detail because we don't have the time, but I essentially flew off the handle at a group of people because they weren't doing what was expected of them, what I'd asked them to do. And when I reflected back on that, I went, oh, it's cringy. Even now, 25 years later, I still thought, gosh, but I know now that I would handle things very, very differently because I've got more experience, I've got some more perspective, and I've made some of those mistakes along the way. Mm. It sort of makes me feel good as well thinking about that because failures within sport, in training and stuff, there's a big push on making them be like, okay, you made a mistake, now let's learn from it. When I'm thinking about going into the workforce and that sort of thing, you know, can I make mistakes? It's something that I would think about. It's like, you know, can I make these risks or do I need to, you know, be a bit more conservative? And yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, James, we're going to have to wrap things up. But before we go, and I've really enjoyed this conversation, I want to talk to you about two quick things. The first one is, do you believe you are well positioned for life after sport based on where you are right now? Yes, yeah, I do. But that's only through active searching and active trial and error. That's the biggest thing is that it hasn't just happened. It's been an active process that I've been working on for quite a while now. And I also have the motivating factor of knowing that I'm retiring very soon. So that's a big motivating factor. <laughs> and so if you were sitting down with with other athletes on the Athlete Collective podcast or in another group sort of environment, what are the things that you'd talk to them about when it comes to their, the things that that you've done or the things that they should consider doing when it comes to preparing themselves for life after sport? I'd say it depends on the individual, it depends on the context. And so each person is different, but I'd say the wider macro trends is always the earlier people started thinking about it, the better. And the later they left it, the worse that it got. Um, And so a lot of the things that we talk about that I've spoken to people about that's helped them was starting early and then also not being afraid of just messing up or just of failing because people were forgiving and people like to, you know, actually people are very often willing to help. That's another thing that I've learned as well. And one thing that even me just doing the podcast is reaching out to people. People are often very 
willing to reply, talk back and help as much as they can. And that's a big thing with the transition is actually just asking people, hey, I might need help with this. You know, could you help me? And nine times out of ten, they're going to say, sure. And what's the worst going to happen? They say, no, fine, doesn't matter. So it's just sort of letting go of that. Ego is the wrong word, but it's what I'm going with. It's just letting go of that and just, you know, accepting that it's this sort of next step and I'm not an expert at it. And I think it's a humbling experience. Another thing that I've learned is that the people who've moved on and moved on successfully is that it's just a humbling experience and letting go that you're not going to be the best of the world, whatever it is now. And that's a big one because <laughs> a lot of people say, you know, it's a big change. Like for example, one of my good friends, Rowan Chapman Davies, he has just retired and I had him on the podcast and he said that he's now an accountant. Um, and he said that just coming from a world, a small world of Australian skiing where you're a big fish in a small pond and you, you leave that and you're in a big wide world and it's, it's a big change. And so it's, it's, it's sort of accepting, uh, accepting that change. Well, there's no question about that is for the whole of my working life, James, I've never walked into a room and people have clapped me as I've walked in the door. Uh, <laughs> and, and certainly a lot, of the, a lot of the athletes that I've spoken with over the course of time find that a bit adjusting, especially if you're competing in a sport like you, where you're going overseas and you're playing or you're competing in World Cup events where there's lots of people and they're screaming and shouting and yelling your name and all the rest of it, to walking into a, an office environment <laughs> can, be, can be quite an adjustment. But look, mate, I'm gonna, we're going to wrap things up now. We could talk about this for ages. In fact, we, what we should probably do is consider me jumping on your podcast uh, and, and picking this conversation up over the course of the next little while. But James Matheson, it's great to see you. It's wonderful to talk with you. What you're doing with the Athlete Collective podcast, I think is absolutely brilliant. I look forward to seeing how you progress over the course of the next year with respect to competing. And more importantly, I'm really interested to understand how you go in life after sport. But James, thanks so much for joining me. It's all good. No, thank you so much for having me. And um, I've got a lot of questions here that I didn't actually get to ask you. Um, I'm going to blame you for that, for being a good interviewer, but... I uh, just want to say thank you and what you're doing as well is really, really good and it's helped me personally, so I'm sure it'll help a lot of other people. Cheers, James. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful, and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier, or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward.kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.